The day is January 5th. It is a Tuesday. It's the first class of the year, the year 2021. This will be the second part on How to Be a Good Communist by Lu Xiaoxi, a Chinese communist. This book was written in 1939. Last week we did Chapter 1. We will be starting on Chapter 2, about a third of the way down the page. In tempering and cultivating ourselves, we should take our model, the words and deeds, the work and qualities of the great founders of Marxism and Leninism as manifested throughout their lives. Engels said of Marx, Marx was, before all else, a revolutionist. His mission in life was to contribute in one way or another to the overthrow of capitalist society and of the state institutions which it had brought into being to contribute to the liberation of the modern proletariat, which he was the first to make conscious of its own position and its needs, conscious of the conditions of its emancipation. Fighting was his element, and he fought a passion, a tenacity, and a success such as few could rival. That is from speeches at the graveside of Karl Marx, Selected speeches of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Engels also said of Marx, None of us have the breadth and vision with which he, whenever it was necessary to act quickly, did the right thing and tackled the decisive issue. Interestingly, what Engels said of Marx being a revolutionist and working to bring about the overthrow of capitalist society, working to bring about communism, Comrade Angelo said, we are on the road to communism. What Marx said, what Angelo said, quite similar comrades. Definitely something to keep in mind. Stalin said, concerning the necessity of our learning from the example of Lenin, remember, love and study Ilyik, our teacher, our leader. Fight and defeat our enemies, home and foreign, in the way that Ilyik taught us. Build the new society, the new way of life, the new culture, in the way that Ilyik taught us. Never refuse to do the little things, for from little things are built the big things. That is one of Ilyik's important behests. As someone who does mostly internal work in the party, I can say that this passage here speaks especially strongly to me. We have to remember the grandiose, the big works, as much as we would love to be out there doing all this amazing stuff. We have to remember that there are smaller internal things that need to be done. I don't just run the people's school with the other people on the board. I do smaller commission work, not just running the LGBT commission. I also do work in the Religious Affairs Commission, in which I'm just a member. It's just smaller work. And these small works are very important. And even works such as the things that our comrades in the Southern District are doing, where they're going out and helping to recruit people, helping passing out pamphlets to people, that sort of stuff. These things are very important. These are the small things that Comrade Stalin is speaking of. They're so important, and we 
can't forget that. On another occasion, Stalin said, the electors, the people, must demand that their deputies should remain equal to their tasks, that in their work, they should not sink to the level of political Philistines, that in their posts, they should remain figures, they should be as clear and definite as Lenin was, that they should be as fearless in battle and as merciless towards the enemies of the people as Lenin was, that they should be free from all panic, from any semblance of panic, when things begin to get complicated, and some danger or other looms on the horizon, that they should be as free from all semblance of panic as Lenin was, that they should be as wise and deliberate in deciding complex problems requiring a comprehensive orientation and a comprehensive weighing of all pros and cons as Lenin was. They should be as upright and honest as Lenin was, that they should love their people as Lenin did. These are concise characterizations of Marx by Engels and of Lenin by Stalin. That is how all members of our party should learn from the thinking and qualities of Marx and Lenin and strive to be their worthy pupils. Some say that the thinking and qualities of such great revolutionary geniuses as the founders of Marxism-Leninism cannot be acquired and that it is impossible to raise one's thinking and qualities to their high level. They regard the founders of Marxism-Leninism as born geniuses, as mysterious beings. Is such a view correct? I think not. True enough, the average party member is far from possessing the great gifts and profound scientific knowledge of the founders of Marxism-Leninism, and most of our comrades cannot attain their deep and broad irritations in the theory of proletarian revolution, but it is perfectly possible for our comrades to grasp the theory and method of Marxism-Leninism, cultivate the style of Marx and Lenin and work and struggle, constantly heighten their revolutionary quality, and become statesmen of the type of Marx and Lenin. If they really have the will, take a really conscious and consistent stand as vanguard fighters of the proletariat, really acquire the communist world outlook, never isolate themselves from the current great and deep revolutionary movement of the proletariat and all the laboring masses, and exert themselves in study, self-tempering, and self-cultivation. I'll stop there for questions. This is interesting. This was written in China. The history of the party in this country, we used to have a term called the Jimmy Higgins work. And what that was basically is the old story that Lenin gave to Trotsky and Stalin. 1918, Lenin, we have these leaflets to give out at factory number nine in Petrograd. Who can do it? Come Trotsky, can you do it? Trotsky answers, no, I can't because I'm writing a thesis on how many angels are on the head of one pin. Okay, Lenin then goes to Stalin. Stalin says, of course, and he grabs the leaflets and runs out to the factory. That's the story I was told when I was 15, and I remembered all these years. That's why Stalin got ahead in the party, and Trotsky didn't. The Jimmy Higgins work is the person in the party 
who does all the what we call the groundwork. Some people call it dirty work. I don't call it dirty at all. Where you take the pamphlets, you take the party paper, and you go to the subway station in the morning and you distribute it. You set up a table in the area representing your club in the 19, early 60s when we had the Stockholm Peace Appeal. It was called Ban the Bomb, B-O-M-B movement. And we were setting up tables there. If you see the movie, The Way We Were, I urge people to see it. It's a love story, but it's done in a political context. At the end of the movie, the communist who represents the person in the movie, who's Barbara Streisand, is at the table with Ban the Bomb movement. The same woman who, when she was 18, was at Brooklyn College on the podium calling for support for Republican Spain against fascism. So here's a woman who led her whole life doing the work that has to be done, everyday work. And that's what we call the Jimmy Higgins work. And that's what Lou Chelsea is referring to. Thank you. So the first part, when they're talking about what Engels says of Marx, what Stalin says of Lenin, and then the next line where it says, some say that the thinking qualities in one way, these quotes sound like worshiping. And I would just want that explained to me. What is the difference between a quote like this and leading into something that is what they call cult of personality or Sendero Luminoso and how they viewed Gonzalo? When confronting issues like this and thinking about whether or not Lenin and Marx are figures held up in a cult of personality, what I for myself have tried to keep in mind is what, as a materialist, can we take from their works and what have they done? So these passages are more so referring to Marx and Engels as individuals working in history. And while they were profound individuals who had incredible abilities contributed to the revolution in immense ways that most could not themselves, they had characteristics that others could emulate. And perhaps those abstractions get carried too far, and Lenin and Stalin wrote about that in the Soviet Union. But nonetheless, it's more that they are a model through their works rather than through their words. And I would say that is what differentiates them, at least for me. I think this is a good question. And I think we have to differentiate what do we mean by cult of personality? Is it a cult of personality? Let's seriously think of that. For people who believe in the Roman Catholic faith, which is where I come from, my background, to have a statue of Jesus on a cross, Think about this, in the church. Or is it a way for people to look at that and remember the life of that person who's representing their ideology? And that's where religion is. It's a world outlook. It's their ideology. So a Catholic comes to church, believes in an ideology, and there is a model of their ideology. That's the way I've always looked at it. Not that there's a cult of personality around Jesus. I never saw it that way. Same thing with George Washington. We have statues of George Washington in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Why? Is it a cult of personality to have in textbooks a picture of George Washington as the first president of a republic that got rid of a monarchy? Is that the definition of cult of personality? I don't think so. The other side of the coin is if a person that's in a leadership position, because they represent what they did in a certain historical period for revolution, and they spent their whole life, 70, 80 years, in that revolutionary movement. And they were successful, mind you. Is that a cult of personality to remind people what Comrade Lenin said? 
because of what he experienced throughout his years, the end in Tsarist Russia, and in the first years of the revolution? I don't think so either. That's not my definition. My definition is a cult of personality. It's putting somebody on a pedestal for just being whatever they say on any issue is looked at the end of discussion. I don't think that's what we're talking about. It's not the end of discussion. It's the beginning of a discussion. That's it. Thank you. The way that this text is written is similar to a textbook. So think of it that way. What these quotes are being used as are as ways to teach people. They're guiding examples. They're not necessarily supposed to be taken as this is a holy figure that we have to look up to or anything. They're taken as these people were teachers. They were revolutionary guides. We don't have to hold them up any higher than that. So just remember that this is a textbook that I'm reading from. It's not a book that is using this as any sort of text of worship. This isn't a gospel, if that makes sense. I'm in the process of reading Comrade William T. Foster's book, The History of the Three Internationals. And during the first international, there's all kinds of groups besides Marxists. There's Proudhonists, there's Bakunists, there's Lasallians, there's Blancists. And it just happened to be the Marxists that were historically proven to be the most effective. What is really great, especially in State and Revolution, which is what I've read most recently, is just how legible it is. Like, it's very self-aware, and it is written with the purpose of education. At one point in the book, Lenin starts saying, smash the state, and he keeps on saying it. He repeats it throughout the book. He's drilling it into us. It's not written as some, like, very complicated thesis. I tried reading Bukharin while I was here, and I had to give up because it was just too much. I've tried reading Trotsky in the past, and I've had to give up because it's just not legible. It's so complicated. And of course, those works might have something very interesting in them, but what the real core of Marxist-Leninism is its ability to be understood by almost anyone. It's not some esoteric, vague thing. And I know Capital is very difficult to read. I've attempted to read it on a few occasions, but not with much success. And Marx is like that, unfortunately. But everything that is hard to read in Das Kapital is made very clear and very simple in the Communist Manifesto. So I just think that having institutions like this is helpful, and we really need to look at the basics of Marxist-Leninism and build from there and read the easier work so we can get into the more complicated nature of economy and philosophy. The passage where it said something about comrades or communists won't get it, like the scientific socialist part of Marxism-Leninism, the revolutionary fervor of it, very fast. What he's saying is that when you're starting from a basic knowledge, you have to build up from nothing. You don't come into this knowing everything. Some people will come into this knowing nothing. We've had people come into the party with an astounding amount of knowledge in Marxism-Leninism. We've had people come into the party who just read the manifesto. So what he's saying is that it's going to take some people a long time to get it. That really helps. Thank you so much. The word Philistine, I'm not sure the exact pronunciation, but I know Lenin uses it a lot. And I know the dictionary definition is that it's someone who's hostile to culture and arts 
but I don't know if that's exactly how I should be reading it when I read Lenin. So does anyone know what that means? I'll give you my understanding. A Philistine is someone who comes from an intellectual background who thinks that what they say on every issue is the end of the discussion is correct. But yet, they really don't know their backside from their elbow. I'm being polite in my vocabulary. They really don't know what they're talking about, but they think they do. And they tend to be very sectarian, very this is the answer. And that's what he means by a Philistine. A person who's not really involved in any of the issues of social struggle, but thinks they know everything. If anybody could correct me, I'm open to correction. I believe that's what he means by political Philistine. Lenin uses just the term Philistine, and so does Marx on occasion. And I do believe that there is a quote from Marx where he speaks specifically about the importance of the arts. And I think that there are times when Lenin, at the very least, may use the term interchangeably, but Angelo is correct on the definition of a political Philistine for certain. Uh, I think what Angelo said is correct in how you describe political Philistine. Another interpretation that I've gotten from reading Marx and Lenin and even Stalin is that someone who is dead set in their ways and are unwilling to see the bigger picture or to even change their mind on subjects and are really quite ignorant. You can go back to the reading. There are people who, when studying Marx and Lenin, fail to get the essence of Marxism Leninism, but only learn it in terms of phrases and superficiality. Although they read Marxist Leninist literature, they are unable to use its principles and conclusions as a guide to action and apply them to concrete, practical problems in real life. They are content to learn isolated principles and conclusions by rote and even style themselves the genuine Marxist-Leninists, but they are certainly not genuine Marxist-Leninists, and their actions and methods are diametrically opposed to Marxism-Leninism. Then there are people of exactly the opposite kind. They see themselves, above all, as pupils of the founders of Marxism-Leninism, conscientiously study the theory and method of Marxism-Leninism, and strive to grasp its essence and spirit. They look up to the noble character and proletarian revolutionary qualities of the founders. In the course of revolutionary struggles, they conscientiously carry on self-cultivation and examine themselves to see if their handling of affairs, their dealings with people, and their own behavior conform to the spirit of Marxism-Leninism. They are well-read in Marxism-Leninism, but at the same time, they make a special effort to investigate and analyze living reality, to study the characteristics of their own time and of all aspects of the situation facing the proletariat of their own country, and to integrate the universal truth of Marxism-Leninism with the concrete practice of the revolution in their own country. They do not content themselves with memorizing Marxist-Leninist principles and conclusions, but take a firm Marxist-Leninist stand, learn the Marxist-Leninist method, and act accordingly, giving spirited guidance in every revolutionary struggle, and thus they transform reality, at the same time transform themselves. Every one of their actions 
without exception, is guided by the general principles of Marxism-Leninism and is devout to the victory of the proletarian cause. The liberation of the nation and all mankind and the triumph of communism. Now, the first people mentioned, those who are content to isolate principles and they learn the slogans, they read theory but are not capable of applying it practically. Lev Kamenev, who will prop up the cult of personality. Those are the people who will go around and they will quote Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and they will worship these people. They'll prop them up as gods, almost. The other people that are mentioned, they're the students of Marxism-Leninism, as we all are. They will fight against the idea of the cult of personality. They'll fight against any attempt to form a cult of personality. The attitude of these people is the only correct one. It is the one attitude towards studying Marxism-Leninism and learning from the qualities of its founders that will enable us to become communist proletarian revolutionaries of the Marx and Lenin type. A person who really takes pains to cultivate himself and to be a faithful pupil of the founders of Marxism-Leninism will lay special stress on maintaining the Marxist-Leninist stand and using the Marxist-Leninist viewpoint and method to solve the problems arising in the revolutionary movement led by the proletariat as the founders of Marxism-Leninism did. What Li Xiaoqi is saying is Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, they're just teachers. That's all they are. He will give no thought whatsoever to his own position or fame in the party, nor will he ever claim to be a Marx or a Lenin, nor require or expect others to have the same high respect for him as for Marx and Lenin, for he does not think he has any right to do so. Yet such a person will enjoy the considered respect and support of the mass of the party members just because he acts in this way because he is always honest and loyal, brave and firm, and shows great ability in the revolutionary struggle. Of course, it's not easy to model ourselves on the founders of Marxism-Leninism, but we can become their faithful and worthy pupils if we are strong-willed and determined to fight hard for the cause of communism, if we diligently study Marxism-Leninism amid the great revolutionary struggles of the masses and are good at summing up experience, and if we temper and cultivate ourselves in every respect and devote our whole lives to the proletarian communist cause. With that, I'll open up for questions. When the comrade speaking about the second group who learned the essence of Marxism-Leninism, it makes me think of scientific Marxism because it's through having a deep scientific understanding and practice that we can further the socialist project towards communism and debunk myths and take it as it comes and evolve with the conditions. This passage is talking about what our responsibilities are as far as not just reading theory, but living the work in our lives and applying theory to our works. And it made me think about the film that Comrade Angelo recommended, the 1981 Reds, and how you watch this couple navigating, being revolutionaries, working with the Bolsheviks, being journalists, and living a full revolutionary life 
dedicated to the work. I feel like one of the themes from a lot of the breedings, including this one, has been about separating the wheat from the chaff. And I guess my question is, is there a specific mechanism within the party for discerning who the members of the party are who are properly applying the principles of Marxism-Leninism versus those who aren't? And is there definite criteria for knowing who's walking down the right path, or do you just kind of know it when you see it? There's a famous quote, and again, it has nothing to do with the personality. It has to do with when the person wrote it. It was written in the 30s. The quote has to do with the role of the party. Our job is to clarify things so that people become confident in our ideology. The one of the big dangers in our ideology is people become depressed. They think we cannot win. It's a useless cause. Why am I wasting my time? That's a big thing. Why am I wasting my time? And they'll leave the party politically and they'll get involved in their own lifestyle, their own little world, whatever that is. The famous song from the early 40s, the world is the same, you'll never change it. So just find yourself somebody to love. I don't know if the old timers have never heard that song, but that's part of the culture to get into us that we really can't do anything and we get depressed. So what is our job? Our job is to clarify and to push up the idea that what we're doing is important. It is going to change history. It may not be in our lifetime, comrades. It may not. But it will be in the lifetime of those who come after us. And some of us who are parents live through our children and others who are just members of society, whether we're teachers or educators or anything else, we live through our students, our pupils. But we can definitely find out who they are by a human connection with people. You really get to know who is full of it and who is not. I'm not using any other words than that. You get to know carefully by those who push themselves up, talk about Philistine before we were saying that word Philistine, and those who give confidence. What I try to do in my life, everybody I touch, is that they are important. This idea that they're not important, that they're nobody, is a bourgeois idea, because we who talk about the collective, the only reason why our collectives are important is because we know a collective is made up of individuals. And each individual is to be treated with respect for the work they're doing in the collective. Not for the work they're doing for themselves, but for the work they're doing in the collective. Not the people who are pushing an ideology which is only going to benefit them as a leader in that particular group. I think that's a negative thing. We should see that a mile away. I don't know if everybody understood what I just said, but it's opening up to questioning. Thank you. I finished. It says he will give no thought whatsoever to his own position or fame in the party, nor will he ever claim to be a Marx or Lenin, nor require nor expect others to have the same high respect for him as Marx or Lenin. I think this is perhaps applicable to a lot of some particular historical movements we've seen within Marxism-Leninism, such as with the Khmer Rouge or the Shining Path in Peru, and that the leaders of these particular organizations insist on people holding them up to the same plane as Marx or Lenin. But in reality, the movements which succeed the most are those who are led by leaders who understand that their place in history will be decided by the masses and how they are viewed historically is up to the masses. I agree with you, comrade. Some other historical context, 
Che Guevara was sometimes referred to as the Lenin of Cuba. Thomas Sankara very famously was called the Che Guevara of Africa. I've heard Ho Chi Minh called the Lenin of Vietnam. These are titles they all rejected. None of them wanted to be the Lenin of Cuba, the Che Guevara of Africa, the Lenin of Vietnam. They were their own revolutionary. And that's part of what Lu Xiaoqi is saying here, is to be your own revolutionary, to learn from these revolutionaries, but to remember that you are your own revolutionary. You don't have to be a Marx or a Lenin. There is a Marx and a Lenin. I think a lot of people seem to, when they want to become, let's say, a Marxist-Leninist, they're very, I would say, scholarly and academic, and they try to read all of the theory, but not understand what the praxis means, what it means in reality. I think you read the works of Bill Haywood and his criticisms of early leftists and unionists and anarchist groups kind of holds true today. Same thing you can reply to Trotskyists is that they don't actually know the practice that you have to achieve and how you should implement them. And you shouldn't have to worship all theory, but you have to understand the material conditions of what's going on. For example, I'm an Ethiopian American. If I wanted to advocate for socialism in Ethiopia, I'm not just going to copy what the Derg did. I have to take inspiration, but I have to apply it to the material conditions of, let's say, Ethiopians in the year 2021. This is the very beginning of Chapter 3, the self-cultivation of communists and the revolutionary practice of the masses. In order to become faithful and worthy pupils of the founders of Marxism-Leninism, we must engage in all-round self-cultivation in the course of the great and protracted revolutionary struggle of the proletariat and the masses. We must engage in the cultivation of Marxist-Leninist theory, self-cultivation in applying the Marxist-Leninist stand, viewpoint, and method to the study and handling of all problems. Self-cultivation in proletarian revolutionary strategy and tactics, self-cultivation in proletarian ideology, self-cultivation in upholding unity in the party, practicing criticism and self-criticism. I find this part to be especially important. I know for the majority of people, taking criticism, receiving criticism, whether it's constructive or not, is very difficult, myself included. I know that that can be difficult for people, and it's something that all Marxist-Leninists must learn. One of the best things about being a Marxist-Leninist is that we are always striving to be the best Marxist-Leninist that we can be, and we can always be a better Marxist-Leninist. Self-cultivation in developing the style of hard work and persistent struggle. Self-cultivation in building close ties with the masses self-cultivation in various branches of scientific knowledge. That would be, for example, studying dialectical materialism, but even outside the social sciences, understanding as best you can science in general can be very important. We are all members of the Communist Party, and therefore we must all, without exception, carry on self-cultivation in these respects. 
However, since party members differ from one another in political consciousness, experience of struggle, field of work, cultural level, and in the conditions in which they work, it is natural that comrades should differ in some extent in the various aspects of self-cultivation to which they must pay special attention or which they must stress. When Sung Tzu in ancient times said, I reflect on myself three times a day, he was discussing self-examination. The Book of Odes, in famous lines, as knife and file make smooth the bones, as jade is wrought by chisel and stone, referred to the need for help and criticism among friends. What all this shows is that very hard work and very earnest self-cultivation are essential if one is to make progress. But the self-cultivation pursued by many people in the past was generally idealistic, formalistic, abstract, divorced from social practice. They exaggerate the role of subjective intentions, thinking that so long as they had goodwill in the abstract, they could transform reality, society, and themselves. Of course, this is absurd. Our self-cultivation cannot be done that way. We are revolutionary materialists. Our self-cultivation cannot be spread from the revolutionary practice of the masses. I want to remind everyone that this is a school. Not everyone is going to agree on everything within the school. And when people do disagree, that doesn't mean that whoever it is no longer comrades. People can have honest, intellectual, good faith disagreements, and there's nothing that says that we're opposed to that. I just want to give that brief disclaimer. That can be a hurdle for some people. There was one thing that really resonated, and it was about not necessarily trying to be the next Marx or the next whoever we respect. I was training to be an opera singer, and one thing my teacher said was, the worst thing you can do is try to imitate somebody's voice that you respect. And thinking about that, Pavarotti always got compared really favorably to the famous tenor Caruso, but he hated Correct. that. He resisted it because he didn't feel it was fair to Caruso. And I think that it's just a funny analogy that can be applied here. I teach history as my actual job, and it's something I struggle with there, too, is the difference between learning something you memorize versus learning the skills that allow you to actually keep learning and growing. I could spend all day hammering facts into my kids' heads, and maybe some of them might remember some of them, but they couldn't read anything from the air and kind of understand it. So I like reading this tonight about the ways that we're supposed to self-cultivate, but we're supposed to do it while being grounded in reality. We have to remember we're grounded in the material world and we're trying to change it, but we can't do this abstractly. We have to be doing this while we're grounded. When I read some of the best works of Mao, like on contradiction or on practice, I always hear that one of the cornerstones of Marxism-Leninism is to not just read what's going on, but to apply it. I always hear that. It's, you can't just apply it without reading, and you can't read without applying it. But I'm having a little bit of trouble as I would imagine some other comrades, applying this in real life. So I would just want to know if anybody at all has any 
suggestions and if this is relevant to discussion as to what we can do in our neighborhood and stuff, whether it's dropping copies off of the worker at local laundromat or setting up a place like the Black Company did, food giving station or something like that. If anybody had any advice on that, that'd be great. When it comes to applying the practice in your daily life, I find that the main way to approach it, at least for me lately, has been trying to tackle individualism and to build a more materialist and collectivist mindset. And to do that in small ways, such as taking care of those around me, like my parents or my friends or even myself, and thinking, how can I, as a contributor to this broader social organism, make it a healthier and a happier organism? And I feel that's what we as communists are trying to do to the entire species in general, but we can do that in small ways in our daily life by living and expressing kindness. And I think that that's kind of a practical way to interpret Marxism. Overall, organizing, helping the working class in whatever ways you can, I think that's uh, overall great. I wanted to elaborate a little bit on what I said, how important it is to have these smaller building blocks in our theory and our practice and not to just put all our eggs in one basket, so to speak, to cultivate here and there and to take up challenges when we're ready for them and not go barreling headlong into dangerous situations. It's important to really be careful and thoughtful in our daily lives, not just as Marxist-Leninists, but as humans as well. I'm not trying to push forward a humanitarian philosophy, but I am just saying that there is a very human element in the observation of the structures of capitalism and these political and economic structures. Let me tell you what I found as success for being a good communist. This may sound corny to some people, but it worked for me for 60 years. And that is you have to be, number one, a good human being. I know that sounds corny, but if you're not a good human being, you can know all the quotes of Lenin and Stalin and Mao. It doesn't mean a bit of beans. It means nothing if you're a lousy human being. So you have to be respectful of people. Have compassion, empathy, that's very important in our human psyche, which Trump was lacking. Empathy and compassion for those less fortunate than us. And you have to have an understanding of the class structure of society and understand that our number one loyalty is to our class. If we don't have that, then we're not communist, in my opinion. We have to have loyalty to our class. We have to be good human beings, and we have to follow a moral code that's beneficial to the human race. That's all. Thank you. Mental health during the pandemic and other various issues. Something that has helped give me some structure during that time and I think has definitely helped me has been working with the party and doing what I can to get involved. And I find that the structure that it provides and the camaraderie and the education is just overall so wonderful. And I think that's something I really liked about this text was how, to me anyway, it communicated by being a good communist that helps yourself and your fellow comrades, and I think that's especially important for our mental health. Tonight's meeting has been really motivational for me. Going back to Sirsha's comment on self-reflection, I did a lot of self-criticism throughout this meeting. Some of the things Comrade Angelo said really resonated with me, and I could relate to out of personal experience, the getting depressed and that causing you to drift away from the party. That's happened to me multiple times. And Comrade Angelo's comment on 
empathy, I think I could probably stand to be a better and more empathetic comrade. So I think tonight's meeting has been really productive in terms of helping me work toward being a better comrade. This book seems to be bringing out the best in our comrades. And I think that is a very good indication of the worth of the material in this book and the worth of our comrades to be able to see the importance of the material in this book and their ability to understand it. And I really appreciate that. There was one thing that stuck out. The line was, he will give no thought whatsoever to his own position or fame in the party, nor will he ever claim to be a Marx or a Lenin. That really struck home to me because whether it's Facebook or Discord or anything else, I find that we as party members tend to do a lot of shortcut identification. We tag a group or a person. We slot a person or a group and say, oh, well, they're right of PSL. I could give you a whole bunch of examples. And I get uncomfortable whenever I see that. It's such a subjective, very shallow way of trying to use shortcuts to describe people's organizations. And the other thing is, one of the things that got me into the Communist Party was one of the quotes. I forget which one. I think it was from Lux. It says, we leave no one behind. All right? It's all or nothing. So that does still include the bourgeoisie. It includes the police. It includes everybody. And I think that's where the empathy comes in. But I think we really need to understand we cannot be elitist. And we cannot, for heaven's sakes, be exclusionary. The whole religious thing is exclusionary. We need to be inclusive, as able as a human being. This book brought me to Marxism-Leninism. Beforehand, I was an anarchist who was one of the people who had been described in this book. I had done the reading of Marx and Engels and Lenin. I'd read some Stalin, but I didn't really understand it. This book helped push me to understanding that. So it moved me in the right direction. If it wasn't for this book, I believe I would probably still be an anarchist who didn't know any better. It's also a very good source of material for, for educating us. And to go off of what Comrade Angela had said about it being required to be a good person to be a communist, there have been, as well, plenty of people who were good people but were bad communists, and we have to remember that as well. Something that Comrade Angelo says very often, and we need to keep in mind, is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's not to try and contradict anything Comrade Angelo said, because it is absolutely true that you have to be a good person to be a good communist. But it's important to remember both facts in life. I think that this reading makes crystal clear that there aren't some things where it's like, oh, I can be bourgeois on this, but I can be collectivist on this. That's not the mentality that we need. It's I'm with my class on everything. I'm with the proletariat on everything. I'm with my comrades on everything. There isn't, oh, but I'm going to leave this bourgeois insertion into my life. That's something that we have to avoid. The second thing that I wanted to say, a couple of comrades mentioned it, about being depressed and being down in terms of 
when people get into the Communist Party or become a communist. There's a historian, a bourgeois historian. His name is Francis Fukuyama. And in 1992, one year after the fall of the Soviet Union, he wrote a book, and that book is called The End of History and the Last Man. And the argument that he makes in this book is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Western liberal democracy is the final form of human political organization. This is the argument he makes in this 400-page book. And for those who become depressed, I want you to know that three years later, in 1995, he had to write a book in which he retracted, essentially, the idea that humanity was on the last leg of history. That book that he wrote, sort of refuting it, is called Trust, Social Virtues and the Creation of Prosperity. So even this bourgeois historian cannot stand the test of time that Marxism can, because Marxism guarantees that history changes, that history progresses, that humanity moves forward. And even though some bourgeois historians and some idealists may think that Western liberal democracy is the final stage of human progress or of political organization, those people are going to be kicked aside to the curb in the same way that other bourgeois historians have by Marxist theory and now in the stage of imperialism, Marxist-Leninist theory. 1991, some of us in the communist movement adopted a logo, and the logo was a tree stump cut down, and all of a sudden you see new shoots coming up. And one of the shoot is a hammer, and the other shoot is a sickle, showing that they tried so many times to destroy our movement, and they failed every single time. The one they tried the hardest was Adolf Hitler. He tried the hardest. He wrote a book called Mein Kampf, My Struggle, and he said we have to destroy Bolshevikism. Then you had the liberals, like the guy in England, Churchill, and said, we have to destroy the Bolshevik baby in its cradle before it grows up. So they tried this many times. They'll continue to try. But they'll never win because the class struggle is unending. You can't stop the class struggle. So I wanted to mention that famous logo. The other thing, history. Remember the famous quote from Comrade Fidel when he was tried by the Batista government before the revolution? And he said, history will absolve me. History will tell the world that what I did was good and the charges against me were false. Well, history again showed that he was correct. For 32 years, I was a history teacher, another culprit in the history teaching department. And what I found, what I did in the classroom was not really from the textbooks. I was a guide for my students who most of them did not have mothers or fathers at home. So I was their role model. And that was my teaching, was more about relating to them as human beings and letting them to know that somebody cares about them. And you don't know how important that is, comrades, when you have people 20 years later come up to you and you don't even know who they are. Who are you? Don't you remember me, Mr. D? I'm so-and-so, sat in the first scene, and, and I, I start crying. I can't believe that the little kid that I had in my classroom 20 years later remembers me. Why did he remember me? He remembered me because he knew I cared about them. Each student I had, I cared about them, just the way I care about everybody in our party. And some of them disappoint me, comrades. They know that, but still, I care about them. So that's about history teaching. The other thing I was going to say, most exciting thing, is to be a force in one's life where you could leave them with something which that they'll remember what you said. And there are people on this phone call who I had discussions with a couple of months ago 
who remember what I said. And I'm kind of surprised at that, but excited that my words, let's be honest, comrades, it's words of love. That's what it is. Remember, the most important thing is to love your comrades. Love your comrades. The most inciting thing Fidel wrote in a book called What Gives One a Force of Life? It is not money, but serving your fellow man. And so I want to end it with that, that this is a exercise in caring and respect and loving one another. It is not corny. It is what Comrade Shea talked about. It's what all the comrades who gave their lives for our cause in Greece in the concentration camps when the Nazis put them there, Don the Hunter in 67 when they took over and they put communist Greeks in concentration camps. It's what happened to our comrades in Ethiopia when the government there fell. And it's exactly all of us in the 50s in this country who lost their jobs because we believed in this world cause. What can I tell you, comrades? This is the future. There was an old quote, I've seen the future and it works. And we've seen the future. Those who went to lived in the Soviet Union saw the future. It definitely works. And this is not the end of history, as comrade mentioned, but it is the beginning of history. Thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.